Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's 2022. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all the ASP listeners out there. Our first uh, show we're putting together for 2022, Tyler. Yeah, and it feels great to be back. We have big plans for this year, Peter. We do. uh, We're excited to bring everyone along for another great year of coastal and ocean content on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And specifically on this show, we're getting started. You know, I I was out in California for the holidays and I am back in the great state of Texas. Yeah. Which means that I'm sinking my teeth just now into this uh, environment and where we are. And I'm thinking about the Texas coast. And so, Peter, today we're going to really get to think about and vision on the Texas coast, which is wonderful. We are indeed. With a great guest, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the show today, Jim Blackburn, uh, one of the premier environmental lawyers in the state of Texas and has been for about 20 years in all of my professional career in coastal issues and coastal management in Texas. Jim is a bedrock of public interest law on the Texas coast. Uh, He is the attorney and and co-owner of Blackburn and Carter in Houston, Texas, a great law firm. He is the faculty scholar at the Baker Institute at Rice University, and he is the co-director of the Speed Center at Rice. And the Speed Center, for all you listeners out there, I think a lot of folks in Houston area will know what the Speed Center is, but the Speed Center stands for the Severe Storm Prediction, Education, and Evacuation from Disasters Center, a real prominent think tank on coastal management, coastal issues, and coastal risks in Texas. And he's also a professor of environmental law at Rice University, an incredibly accomplished uh, man who has uh, done great service to the Texas coast for decades. Uh, the reason we're doing this show, Tyler, is every December, Jim releases the Holiday Coastal Update, and I received my Holiday Coastal Update in 2021. Uh, this document he produces comes has been coming out for, I don't know, we're going to ask him, I think it's about 20 years I've been reading the Coastal Update from Jim, so great guy for the show. And when we're doing this pre-show talk with Jim, just a few minutes ago, ladies and gentlemen, Jim says that as he does this particular report now, the Texas coast is changing faster than ever. So we have a lot to talk about about. on today's show. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Jim, appreciate you taking time out to join us on the American Shoreline podcast. Welcome to 2022. Well, I'm happy to be here and thank you guys for having me. Well, Jim, as a, as a background for our audience, I hope my introduction was reasonably complete. Um, can you tell us how long you have been doing the coastal update and newsletter that you send out to uh, interested parties every year? 
Well, actually, I just went through and compiled all of my newsletters, and they go back to 1992. And uh, I think I skipped a year or two, or I've lost a year or two in there, but they have been uh, most almost continuously about the uh, November, December time frame of uh, the last 30 years. And Jim, uh, take us back to where you were in your life back in 92 when you started. What what were you up to those days that prompted you to start this news, newsletter? Well, I uh, had been representing uh, a woman named Diane Wilson, who is a uh, environmental activist in the Midcoast down in the San Antonio, Matagorda Bay area. And we had been uh, litigating against Formosa Plastics in the Midcoast and reached uh, several settlements. Um, some of which were rather controversial. And I decided that I needed to inform the public, my belief on uh, controversial things that I've been involved in a lot of them is transparency is really important. And the the more that you kind of put out there and at least tell the truth about it and put the correct information out, uh, the better chance that a, a reasonable interpretation will be made rather than people acting on their worst fears. I think so often we, uh, everyone tends to be secretive and I think that is the wrong direction for the future, frankly. So you decide to put out this, uh, Texas coastal holiday, uh, newsletter because you want to illuminate the issues of the coast. And take us back to to 1992. What was on your mind back then as to the top priorities that were going on? Well, I think at that time, it was a much more adversarial time. Uh, It was uh, kind of right in the middle of what I call the toxics wars. Uh, There was a lot of toxic emissions. We really hadn't begun to see the improvements that have come from RICRA and from CERCLA, the hazardous waste laws in the United States. Uh, there was just, I, I would tell you, say there was probably as much hard feelings and acrimony up and down the coast over industrial expansion and pollution control as I can recall in, in the history, in, in my history. Also, we were arguing over wetland protection. And, you know, I mean, many of the issues we argue about today, I just think that, you know, the tenor and the thrust of it was more like, do we do it and how do we do it? Uh, and I think today, you know, the conversation is just totally transformed from what it was 30 years ago. And I think that really these coastal updates, and I, I, I'm in the process of putting them all on my website. The more recent ones can be found at Jim Blackburn or www.jimblackburninfo.com. But, if, but the full uh, group of them I'm going to be putting up in the next few weeks. And I think they actually make for some interesting reading. Some of the things I predicted didn't happen, some did. But I think it's just a really interesting kind of historical overview of the kind of the evolution of issues on the Texas coast, at least from my perspective. Well, Jim, I've been reading it for many, many years. I think going back to my days at the Texas General Land Office in the mid-90s. And I have to say that the tone and tenor of your report about the Texas coast, it reads more positively these days, it's not as if there aren't significant uh, and very meaningful challenges ahead on the Texas coast. But there is there's something about the tone and tenor, Jim, over these years that seems to uh, indicate that we've made some progress in how we address coastal issues. What's your assessment of how things have changed over this 30 year period as a as an observer and practitioner in, on the Texas coast? 
Well, I think in a way, perhaps uh, getting older helps on some of these things. Yeah, uh, it does. I, I, you know, I think when you're in the trenches and fighting, uh, uh, you know, I was an environmental lawyer, never had enough money, always had clients that had no political power. Uh, so, I mean, I was always on kind of the, I, I was on the side that was supposed to lose. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, the challenge was finding creative ways to win or to get to the point where you could at least achieve a reasonable goal. And my perspective has changed these days where I'm much more focused on the economy. Um, you know, I look back at, I mean, I, my career goes all the way back to the, uh, I started law school in 1969. Uh, and all of the environmental laws that we practice under really today, most of those were developed while I was in law school. Uh, most right. of those were passed by Congress. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, um, Endangered Species Act came around about that time. NEPA. Uh, NEPA, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, if one way of thinking about that time period is we had a failing economic system. We had an economic system that... Uh, was just belching pollution. Uh, it was uh, it was really uh, was hurting. It's killing our streams. It was destroying uh, our air. And I think of these environmental laws as band aids on an economic system that was failing. Hmm. And I think where we are today is that we are changing the economic structure. And I think our our solutions, if you will, are more fundamental that are emerging today. They're no longer band-aids. They're systemic changes that will truly alter both the impact of economic activity, but also the structure of it. And that's what I'm most optimistic about is these uh, wonderful changes in economic uh, thinking that at least I'm perceiving. And I'm Mm. not sure. I I haven't seen many economists writing about it a whole scale change in economic thinking, but I, I certainly see that and I am talking about it a lot, um, you know, in my connections at Rice and my, to my students and basically to anyone who will listen. Let's explore that a little bit more. I, you know, my, my law school career in environmental law at Lewis and Clark Law School up in Portland was 1983, so a decade and a half after uh, your tenure in law school. And uh, I, the, the subject of uh, environmental uh, uh, discussion at that point really focused on command and control regulatory structures. Uh, you've mentioned that we've moved away from that maybe into a more fundamental and transformative change that deals with the economic system. Can you elaborate on what changes in the economic system you have seen uh, that, uh, that are really taking us in a, in a better and new direction, sounds like? Well, I certainly believe that. And it's interesting being commanding control was what I grew up with. Commanding control, you know, I mean, I was a, a regulatory uh, promoter, uh, believer. And you were a hawk. You were a regulatory a hawk. hawk. A regulatory hawk. And now I am much more of a regulatory dove in the sense that I don't think it enables things. I think it can stop bad problems, but I don't think it allows things to happen. And we need things to happen differently these days. And I don't think regulation is necessarily the way that we should get there. I think of enablement as being much more important right now than I think of regulation. Um, kind of having said that, it, it's interesting. The United States, when you know, during my early career, during the 70s, during the early 80s, uh, when you were in law school, Peter, 
you know, those were the days when the United States was the global leader in environmental thinking. Uh, but our new laws pretty well stopped in 1990 with the Clean Air Act amendments. I mean, there've been, there's been some tweaks and things like that, but we haven't seen, I don't think a new major environmental law in 30 years. Mm. And it's an interesting uh, kind of back and forth that has taken place. We have lost the environment as a uh, nonpartisan issue. It has become very much a partisan issue. Uh, but during that time period, industry has transformed itself. And uh, there's some uh, very interesting kind of landmarks that are out there. I think that certainly climate and climate change is driving a lot of the economic change that I see. And it's coming from uh, really the financial side of the equation. Um, uh, financial institutions wanting to see ESG plans, the environmental, social and governance plans, and what companies are planning to do about uh, climate change and carbon emissions. Uh, well, that's a fundamental structural change to begin to have these questions coming, not from government, but from your lender. And that is across the board. Uh, engine number one that uh, came in uh, with the Exxon uh, mobile uh, board elections, uh, the whole kind of involvement of stakeholders with big stakes, you know, large financial institutions beginning to vote their shares in terms of carbon sensitive boards of directors, carbon sensitive policies. Um, you know, that is not government action. That is private sector action. And in a way there was a vacuum that was set up in these 30 years of non congressional action and the financial sector, the business sector in many ways has undertaken its own reform structure, which is, I think, enabling a new economic system to emerge. That's fascinating. And, you know, I, I would I would love to understand how and this is, you know, for our national and international audience, the Texas coast is an amazing stretch of Gulf coastline. But, Jim, can you help place the Texas coast in this broader ecosystem of forces that you are describing that have to do with uh, not only federal policies of environmental protection, but also inter global corporations that are playing in global marketplaces and with global financial institutions. How do you, when you look at the Texas coast, how do you place that as a, uh, you know, a, a, an interesting thing to, to write this newsletter about in this broader context. Well, I mean, the Texas coast is a hard place. It is a, it's a blue collar place. It is a working person's place. Uh, it is heavy manufacturing. Uh, we're probably the center of oil and uh, oil refining and plastics and other types of chemical manufacturing of uh, us you know, between Texas and Louisiana. We probably got the, uh, by far the, uh, the dominance in those two areas. I think the Houston ship channel itself um, and the Galveston Bay area is probably, oh, I don't know, 12% of the production of refining products in the United States, maybe a quarter of the plastics in the United States just from one base system. So we've got heavy industry um, and it, we, in those industries have tremendous political power. Uh, we are anti-regulatory as a general proposition, both at the um, local government level, um, coastal county level, for example, uh, and at the state level. Um, I think that the state of Texas probably does 
the absolute bare minimum it can to comply with federal environmental law, trying to take full advantage of getting as much money as it can while putting forward the least regulatory action that it can. So in a way, it is a perfect place for industry. Uh, and, and then in the midst of this, you see this change occurring. And, and so in a way, it's kind of like the pot boils pretty hot on the Texas coast. I mean, you know, the stuff here is global in its influence. You know, Houston is the center of probably energy uh, production in the world, uh, certainly oil and gas production in the world. Uh, but now we're talking about becoming the carbon sequestration hub of the of the world. And oh, we're all of a sudden publicly talking about climate change. And that is new. That did not happen. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Up until what, 19, you know, 2019, 2020, in that time period, all of a sudden things changed and it was a massive change. And, you know, that's what I'm excited about is all of a sudden the conversation is totally different. You know, Jim, in your introduction, a couple of things right off the bat in the in the Coastal Update 2021 is you, you say to to your readers that many of the changes that you are seeing are offering hope for the future of the coast, the number one challenge uh, that this coastline faces as a state, and I think coastlines around the world face, is climate change. And uh, you point out a couple of, of these financial uh, powerhouse entities that are beginning to think differently uh, in response to climate change. You mentioned BlackRock, the trillion-dollar investment firm that made ESG or uh, uh, parameters in terms of their investment decisions uh, predominant and announced that to the public in 2020. And then the response by the Houston Partnership, which is, I think, the major corporate representation entity in that great city, uh, also getting on board with this idea of, of making Houston the capital for carbon capture and sequestration technology. Um, here's my question. You've been a litigator uh, a trench warrior. You fought uh, this for decades now in the regulatory uh, command and control regulatory arena. You've moved on now to be, uh, I would say, an emissary uh, at, in your positions at Rice University. Uh, do you have confidence and faith in the institutions, the financial institutions, to carry us into a new day when it comes to these challenging issues? Do you trust them, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, I'm learning to uh, to kind of evaluate uh, the, the whole financial side of things differently. Uh, I trust money in the following sense. I trust that decisions will be made in pursuit of money. And I mean, nothing moves faster than a corporation that has decided that their profits lie uh, 180 degrees opposite than where they have been going. And <laughs> nothing moves quicker than a corporation to that. I mean, we as individuals are horribly slow to change. Corporations can change on a dime if they appreciate that the money is like 30 degrees, 40 degrees, you know, in another direction, they'll move there very, very, very quickly. Now. Their decision-making process can be, can seem like, you know, it's moving a super tanker. But on the other hand, once they make that decision to pursue money in a particular direction, they will go. So I trust money as a, um, if you will, as a direction indicator and as a prompter of action. 
uh, when the financial institutions begin to use their money to achieve policy goals, whoa, watch out. I mean, you can make a lot happen very quickly. And I think that's what happened. 2020 is a landmark year. That was when BlackRock made its uh, monumental uh, kind of decisions that they would start voting their, uh, their shares for better management from a carbon standpoint, that they would set up ESG funds that were uh, non-hydrocarbon related, that they would uh, begin to divest out of coal. Uh, Bobby Tudor, who was president of the Houston Partnership, uh, spoke out about climate change really for the first time institutionally in Houston in, again, January 2020. And in a way, all of this change that I am identifying all has happened under the cloak of the pandemic, which really hit us all in March of 2020. And so, so much of what I have been working on in the last uh, two years has happened um, with the pandemic as an overlay. And so it's even more fascinating to think that a lot of this has happened with Zoom conversations and, and not in-person meetings. And um, I mean, I'm just fascinated by it. Climate change though has two pieces. One is this financial corporate response side. The other is our ability to respond to the physical change that has occurred. And I would say, while I'm very optimistic about the financial side and about frankly, the new economy that I think will be emerging uh, I am very concerned that we have lost 20 years of response time to abate the worst negatives of climate change. And I think we on the Texas coast will suffer for that, uh, from that. And I think that's probably the, the that's probably the one, uh, I would say true negative I see coming up is I think we're getting ready to get hit and hit hard by climate change. No doubt about it. Uh, the Texas coast is right on the front lines of climate change subject to powerful storms. And Jim, one of the uh, things that you recommend in your newsletter is a thousand miles of living shoreline along the Texas coast. Can you talk us through that vision and what that would mean? Well, there, there are several aspects and several reasons that come together to lead me to recommend this thousand miles of living shoreline. Um, I, I love the marshes of the Texas coast. I think that uh, really from uh, probably from Coconut Bay north up the coast all the way through uh, the Sabine uh, Lake system, we have fabulous coastal marshes in Texas. And unlike Louisiana, they're really not decimated by the uh, uh, the extent of uh, kind of onshore oil or, or uh, bay-related oil and gas development and things like that. Uh, but those marshes, which sequester huge amounts of carbon dioxide, are in, in danger from sea level rise. Uh, and particularly if these marshes become in, you know, uh, inundated by water on a daily basis to a greater extent than they are now, they could begin to slough off and die, and particularly if you have highly erosive winds coming up. We could have a lot of carbon release from that, and we'd lose our important productive coastal marshlands that are so essential to shrimp and uh, crabs and uh, flounder and really to the overall ecological health of the bay. So the idea is that we could build oyster reefs along the margin of these uh, marshes and basically put an erosion barrier all along the marshes of the Texas coast by building oyster reefs that are wonderful courses of fishery. But they also sequester carbon. And so what I am looking at is a, a way for landowners to make money. Uh, as sea level rises, I want our marshes to migrate inland. 
Uh, but there's no reason for landowners to help this out right now, if anything, to maybe even put up berms to try to stop it because they don't make any money off of marshes. It's hard to run cows in a marsh and uh, you really get no production out of the marsh, even though the marshes that you own as a private individual may be doing wonderful things for the fishery. Uh, and they're worth thousands of dollars per acre per year in productivity. You get no income from that. And so I want to change that. And I think that's part of this new economy we're talking about. And if we can set up a system of shoreline protection for the marshes and allow the landowners to make money off of carbon sequestration from the marsh that is now protected and that hopefully will have sediment coming in behind the living shoreline and basically settling out and hopefully keeping up with sea level rise, we could really have a fabulous long-term solution to carbon, to coastal productivity, and to private landowners uh, realizing much more income than they do currently, all of which would say protect and expand coastal marshes, which is a end result I think would be fabulous for the Texas coast. Wow. Well, it is a tremendous vision, uh, something that we're starting to see uh, occur a little bit around the world, this emergence of this new thinking. I would say, Jim, that you have taken your feet and planted them firmly in the use of economic incentives and economic approaches to uh, environmental protection as opposed to command and control and litigation. Uh, you established uh, the Texas Coastal Exchange, and we want to explain this to the to the listeners, an entity that works with landowners uh, along the coast. And if farmers and ranchers will preserve their coastal wetlands, they will be paid a credit for every ton of carbon they sequester in maintaining their marsh systems. Talk to us about the Texas Coastal Exchange and about the newest entity described in your coastal update this year, the B Carbon entity. Can you walk us through this economic tool that you are in the process of building? Sure, this all goes back to some of the work we did at the Severe Storm Center, the Speed Center at Rice University. Um, we started working on uh, hurricane surge flooding along the Texas coast and Texas coast is low and it gets, it has huge potential storm surge damage in its future. Um, we identified about 6 million acres uh, along the Texas coast that's highly vulnerable. And we were looking for some way of keeping that natural. The natural areas that got flooded by Hurricane Ike recovered very quickly. Uh, the human uh, settlements that got hit by uh, Hurricane Ike back in 2008, uh, many of them still have not recovered fully. So na nature does well with surge flooding so we were trying to find ways to pay or to basically keep landowners from developing. And we knew on the Texas coast, you would never regulate toward that end. Uh, we would never see a, a coastal county, for example, passed uh, a land use regulation that, that just says you can't develop your, you know, your land that's 20 feet or lower along the, uh, no, the upper. That, that, so that's, that's not part of the Texas. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So we've tried to figure out what we could do and what we can do is we can pay landowners for the ecological services that those properties are undertaking. And the biggest one we came across was carbon sequestration. Uh, the coastal prairies uh, put carbon into the soil. The coastal marshes put carbon in the soil. Oyster reefs put uh, carbon into the reef structure and can bring along um, perhaps seagrass development that also puts uh, carbon into the soil. Uh, and then coastal forests put 
uh, some carbon in the trees. So we were looking at ways to pay these landowners and realized very quickly that the current international system that goes back to the Kyoto Protocol is highly dysfunctional, just doesn't work. And we took uh, the terms and conditions of that protocol to a lot of Texas coastal landowners and they said, either one, we can't qualify or two, there's no way we want to qualify for that program. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately I went about with the help of my research team at RISE to create systems by which landowners could be paid. Texas Coastal Exchange is more about um, kind of a, a, I would say it's a kinder, gentler type of approach. Uh, B carbon is hardcore um, carbon credits that are measured. And I think we're probably evolving more toward a measurement based system. Um, all of the buyers of carbon sequestration credits that we've talked to, big oil companies, um, uh, big com you know commerce companies, uh, very mm -hmm. some you know some very well known names out there. All of them want to make sure that if they're paying for carbon sequestration, that it's real. Right. And uh, there's a lot of what we call uh, kind of uh, vapor credits out there. Uh, there are many credits that you really don't know if they're real or not. Uh, so we have worked on developing real credits. Um, Texas Coastal Exchange has done most of its work in coastal marshes. Uh, Valero uh, bought uh, about 20,000 tons of credits uh, uh, a few years back. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we, we have had uh, some you know, interest and success with various companies. Kirksey Architects in Houston is a uh, participant in Texas Coastal Exchange, Valero Corporation, the uh, refiner and gas company, uh, Sprint Waste in Houston. All of them have participated in the Texas Coastal Exchange, but it's really uh, the Coastal Exchange is more oriented toward individuals. Uh, and we've got a website you can go to and you can donate to have your carbon uh, footprint sequestered. Um, but we found individuals are actually less uh, likely to act than, than corporations are. But the corporations would like to see more kind of hardcore science-based testing. And so B Carbon was developed by the Baker Institute at Rice University. We've got a stakeholder group that we have formed, uh, started with 40 uh, individuals and corporations. We now have over 300 stakeholders and we have developed our own carbon credit certification protocol for, for soil. And we will be moving on to forest uh, this year and hopefully oyster reefs in the not too distant future. And all of this will be measured carbon credits. Um, we have a blockchain system that we're establishing to keep up with the credits. Wow. And, and this, this will be a, a bona fide fungible exchange called B carbon. And it is the most exciting thing that I have worked on, I think probably in my career. And we just issued our first 34,000 tons of carbon credits. And we have a queue for 2022 that looks like it will exceed a million tons of credits. Um, and could easily exceed to me. So this is really this is really exciting, and it's a little technical, Jim. And I, I do want to wade into it. Um, B Carbon is a is a five hundred one c three nonprofit entity. It is certifying uh, tax credits, as you say, uh, carbon sequestration credits that are then offered onto the market and can be purchased by carbon uh, carbon dioxide emitters or carbon gas emitters. Um, Correct. 
So let me see if I can walk through the transaction. If I'm a if I'm a rancher on the Texas coast and I've got a thousand acres and let's say I've got fifty miles of shoreline that are that are primarily wetlands, um, how could I uh, get paid uh, for the uh, preservation of the wetlands on my ranch? How would this work out? Well, first thing we, have, we that would be Texas Coastal Exchange that would set that system up. Okay. Uh, at least right now, because we we don't really have coastal wetlands credits set up yet with B carbon. I think that's coming. I see. But with Texas Coastal Exchange, we have literature that indicates that, on average, Texas marshes put about two tons of carbon dioxide per acre per year into the dirt of the marsh. All right. And uh, so we have just established that as a as our default value based on scientific literature we've got all of that documented and a landowner would contact us and if we have anyone that is interested in in buying or setting those credits aside and using those to basically uh, draw down their emissions inventory uh, then we would document this for them and they could put that on their website or on their um, or on their documentation uh, what that is, does not do is offer uh, perhaps the, the chain of custody, the full uh, kind of breadth of information that, that some of the, for example, some of the critics would like to see. And so B Carbon gives much more detail and has much more data uh, to actually back up the credit issuance process than say Texas Coastal Exchange okay. does. Coastal Exchange is perfect for some companies, but for others it, it is not adequate. And so we've uh, developed B Carbon to really fill that void where it makes landowner participation easily. And the landowner has to agree to set their land aside for 10 years. They have to test. And right now we're working with coastal prairies, in fact, prairies all over the United States and the world. Uh, B Carbon's got actually applicants from United Kingdom, from Western Australia, uh, from Paraguay, Guatemala, as well as from virtually, I'd say, 20 states in the United States are applying for B Carbon credits now. So B Carbon is the one that has taken off of the two systems. Well, I love it, Jim, and very innovative. And it's it's doing the thing where you're valuing the natural infrastructure that's already in place, which I think is... Uh, so smart that we do that and because those right. natural in systems and in, in setting up the incentives for its long-term protection agreed well you're as you said earlier in the show you're setting up the the money incentive right and uh, i think that that is exactly the right way of thinking uh, in our uh, current economy and maybe even in the new economy too uh, one thing that i we've got to touch on though is uh, the threat of hurricanes to the Texas coast, specifically to the Houston area. Jim, this is a, an area that you have long uh, had your eye on. Uh, I know that you have proposed, I believe, along with your colleagues over at the Speed Center, an alternative plan to what the Army Corps of Engineers has been running with thus far. But bring bring our listeners up to speed about the Houston Shore Protection Plan and give us your thoughts on it. Okay. Uh Back again, going back to Hurricane Ike in 2008, um, the Houston Endowment funded Speed Center at Rice to conduct hurricane-related research and really vulnerability research uh, for the uh, Houston region. And the Houston Ship Channel Complex, which is probably our largest industrial complex in the United States, 
uh, is incredibly vulnerable to hurricane storm surge. We have been incredibly fortunate that we have not had a storm that came into the south of the city of Galveston so that the uh, focal point of circulation was right up Galveston Bay. But if that were to happen with a uh, strong category three, category category four storm, uh, you could easily see 20, 25 feet of surge coming up the Houston ship channel. And uh, we've got about 2000 storage tanks that would be flooded, uh, seven refineries, probably 150 chemical plants. And it would, uh, in our opinion, be become probably the worst environmental disaster in United States history with the release of both oil and uh, and toxics that would occur with essentially the failure of a number of those tanks. And we're particularly worried about containers floating loose and the containers become just incredible battering rams carried inland with that storm surge. And, uh, and, and so, I mean, I'm personally, I'm horrified about that reality. I think that it understanding the threat of hurricane damage to that industrial complex, not to mention 800,000 residents along the Galveston Bay shoreline. Uh, you know, we're incredibly vulnerable and are, are basically unprotected at this point in time. So uh, a lot of my work over the last 10 years has been trying to move that protection concept along. And at the same time, the Corps of Engineers has been proceeding. And what we have found, and this is a huge coastal problem throughout the United States, is the core is limited to by its benefit cost methodologies to looking at storms that have a recurrence interval of less than a hundred years. And the, the, our statistics have not been updated to essentially uh, identify the increased re risk of bigger storms because of climate change. And so this is one of these areas where our failure to act on climate change in any uniform sense, I think has led to perhaps one of the biggest engineering, um, I won't call it malpractice per se, although I think you will see a lot of malpractice suits over the climate related aspects of, um, of uh, both rainfall and hurricane surge. Bottom line is the Corps has developed a coastal uh, spine concept for Galveston Bay but it's only good up to a to, to a category two storm. And uh, because they're limited by the benefit cost ratio. And so from that standpoint, Houston ship channels unprotected basically from a category three, four, five storm. We ran a category five storm at speed center with the coastal spine in place. And we think it needs to be in place. We're not opposed to it, but there's still a hundred billion dollars worth of damage that occurs with the expenditure of about $25 billion for a coastal spine. So we think in-bay protection is necessary and we have designed a complementary kind of second tier defense called the Galveston Bay Park Plan, which runs a 25 foot levee uh, down the Houston Ship Channel and connects to the Texas City Levee on the south and into Chambers County on the north. And that will protect the Houston Ship Channel uh, but we have to go outside of the core process to get that level of protection. And mm. I think that's the lesson for the rest of the country to get protection against the climate storms of the future. We're going to have to go beyond what the current federal uh, process allows. And that's kind of a reversal in, in many respects of kind of the old adage that, 
the arm, you know, the big projects, the big, you know, 50 year, big, large scale projects that you'd see around America would be Army Corps of Engineers, you know, projects. Mm -hmm. And what Jim is saying there is, well, if you want to beef it up and take it to the next level and really protect your infrastructure, you're going to have to go above and beyond. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it is a uh, an important piece of information for every coastal city and community, certainly in the United States, because like you say, we are used to depending on the core for the big projects, and they simply are not allowed under their current methods to get to where they need to get to. And that, that in part has to do with how they analyze climate change. It in part has to do with, I think, a, a methodology that just is, is kind of set in the 1960s and 70s as opposed to the 2020s. A lot has happened in 50 years. And these methods have not been updated in much too long. And, you know, if we're depending on Congress to get there, it may not happen. And unlike the private sector, which is responding so positively to the financial signals that they're getting, the government doesn't get signals except from Congress. And so what we're seeing is a lot of things happening outside and around government rather than through government. And that is a fundamental change from the 1970s and 80s, Peter, when we were in law school. Yeah. I, you know, Jim, the assertion you're making, and I don't, I don't disagree with it, is that in facing the, the, the newest uh, challenges on the coast of America, including Texas, uh, reliance on the Corps of Engineers may no longer be reasonable given the constraints, legal constraints, that, that prohibit them from truly addressing the threats that we face. That's kind of an astonishing assertion to make. Uh, right. And I would, I would modify that a little bit. I think we cannot depend on the Corps of Engineers alone to solve our problem. Okay. We're going to be, I think they, they have a role they can perform up to a point. It's just to get the level of protection that we're going to need in the long term, we are going to have to be prepared to basically kind of wire a system together kind of around and kind of inclusive of, but way beyond the federal project. Complementary to, yeah. Yeah, and that is what's really different. And I, you know, and what we're finding, I mean, I mean the Galveston Bay Park Plan, uh, we will be pursuing that by a series of uh, core permits as opposed to as a federal project. Uh, but it, it makes everybody nervous, you know. Well, what will the core think about this? Um, you know, you know, the core is absolutely uh, both revered and feared yep. along the coast. You don't want to get the core mad at you because then if they pick up their chips and leave, well, you won't have anything, perhaps. And uh, and so there's a lot of confusion about really these changes and in approaches and how is the best way to go forward and. There is no agreement. Uh, in fact, there's not much knowledge in the engineering community about this thinking because the engineering community is the last one that would ever take on the Corps of Engineers right. and uh, and possibly upset that apple card, which generates so much work for the engineering community. See, now, Jim, this is where your background as a, a good old-fashioned trench warrior and litigator uh, comes into play. Just the thinking about how to 
understand the dynamics of these uh, issues, these complex issues, and how to infiltrate and modify. Uh, but now I'm doing it with it with a in the context of a an, an absolutely stellar organizational structure, the Speed Center and the Baker Institute at Rice University with the credibility and horsepower. Uh, it must be an astonishing point to get to in your career where you are now part of the institutional thinking structure and still able to be innovative and a person who's pushing the envelope. Well, in a way, it's interesting. You're right. It's very much the same type of thinking. It's guerrilla thinking. It's almost yep. like guerrilla warfare. You've got to be willing to make people angry. You've got to take unpopular positions and talk about them because, frankly, to protect uh, the Houston region in 2040, 2050, 2060, uh, we've got to act now. And to act now, you have to talk about issues that will be prominent in 2040, 2050, and 2060. And, you know, that's a very different reality than we're looking at. And it's very difficult to get elected officials that have a, what, two-year to perhaps six-year terms yeah. uh, to think about 30, 40 years into the future. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I had uh, the mayor of Houston at one time um, tell me the hardest thing I could ask a politician to do is to make a decision to spend money on a project that will not be completed during her term. And, you know, these are long term uh, issues and problems. Interestingly, the private sector is more able to think in these terms hmm. than the government is right now. And that's just a total reversal of what it was in the past. That's great to understand that limitation. I call it the time frame of reference problem. And I think it's absolutely true uh, uh, in communities I've been involved with on uh, coasts around the country. Uh, the political horizon is an electoral horizon. The engineering horizon is a 10 or 20 year horizon and the long term planning things are really 50 years and beyond. And the decision making, though, is vested in the power of folks who have a short term focus. And it's great to be aware of that. I think it's it can be contended with and dealt with, but it's absolutely a limiting factor in how these things yeah. go forward. I need to and, ask you, Jim, I, I got to switch subjects here because. Well, no, wait, wait, before you do, let me yeah. just say an update. We have found a willingness on the part of four entities to fund the next phase of work on the Galveston Bay Park Plan. The city of Houston, the port of Houston, Harris County, and a private entrepreneur named Joe Swinbank have agreed to put up 250000 each. And all of this has been uh, more or less approved, but has yet to go through the formal vote. So it's not a done deal yet, but it looks like we will put the alliance together to make the funding happen to move forward with the next next step on the Galveston Bay Park. Absolutely fantastic. And I won't ask you whether our state leadership of Greg Abbott, uh, governor or our lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, or other state leaders have gotten behind this. Uh, no, I will. Have any of these state leadership gotten behind the idea of the necessity of the Galveston Bay Park Plan? Not yet, but we're working on it. And I think, it, frankly, again, I think as with many things, we're, we're learning to talk about climate change in a, you know, try to make it not so much a confrontation, but a kind of just a reality check. Yeah. I, my favorite climate scientist is Catherine Hayhoe, and she's an evangelical Christian. And she says she doesn't believe in climate change, and it catches everybody kind of up short. She goes, mm -hmm. climate change is a fact. It's right. not a belief. Right. I like and, and, and that's the way we need to approach it and just go from there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, Catherine Hayhoe, big fan of hers. 
Tyler and I have been watching very carefully along the Texas shoreline and talking about uh, for the last year, uh, kind of in our sidebar conversations about the explosion of LNG uh, export terminals on the Texas coast, whether it's in the port of Brownsville or Corpus Christi or up in Freeport, or there are several proposals for export terminals. Uh, these are massive projects. And uh, here we have the, uh, the, that fast-paced, quick investor, uh, private sector working to develop new infrastructure that is really counter uh, to responsible climate change thinking. And I'm just wondering, uh, Jim, what, how important or how big of a deal are the LNG terminal proposals that are uh, brewing on the Texas coast as a threat to coastal environmental health? Well, I mean, you know, you've got the larger policy issue of the climate relationship of exporting both oil and gas and LNG. And frankly, I've stayed out of that. Um, you know, the, the world market's going to do what the world market's going to do, and, and, and there will be a race to demand. There are less intrusive ways of exporting LNG, and there are more intrusive ways. Um, I am very much against deepening channels to bring uh, bigger and bigger ships in. Uh, I think that becomes highly disruptive to our base system. If we're going to be exporting LNG, it should be off of Montebuis offshore, in my opinion. I am, uh, I am, I am supportive of that as the least damaging alternative. Um, there are, like I say, there's climate change issues associated with the decision to export. Uh, but in Texas, uh, we've got pipelines being constructed as fast as they can get approvals, bringing uh, uh, natural gas to the coast, and there's going to be pressure to export. And I would just as soon see us do it with the least infrastructure possible to safely achieve the goal. And to me, that's offshore monobuoys. And I am very much against the onshore facilities, just as a broad general proposition. Jim, when you when you look at the next, oh, I don't know, let's just say 10 years, 20 years out, I realize that this is a dynamic time as we let off with the most dynamic time you've seen right now on the Texas coast. But when we're talking about this industrial infrastructure, how do you see those trends playing out? You know, with everything we've talked about, climate change occurring, uh, more flooding is going to be, you know, risks are going to be increasing. But at the same time, we're in this uh, loosey-goosey, laissez-faire state of Texas. Uh, the you, You're talking about the corporations kind of leaning into climate change, maybe being able to pivot even faster than government. Look out, California. Maybe Texas is going to flank you because the corporations are going to get there faster than the regulatory, the, the regulatory side. But where, where do you see this going in terms of, uh, development along the coast is the Texas coast going to continue to be dominated by big industry uh, into the future? I think big industry is changing. I think that we will see less of it over time. I think that uh, when we hear about the transition to, uh, if you will, uh, solar to wind and its increasing role, the electric economy of the future. Uh, I think we will see oil and gas diminish over time. I don't think it's going to diminish in the next 10 years by any stretch. Uh, but I do see by 2040, 2050, uh, a, a diminution. Uh, one of my biggest concerns is that there is a big storm uh, and it 
it shuts down several refineries, whether those will be rebuilt and frankly, whether they'll be cleaned up. Um, I can see a, over a long term, a trend toward a decaying coast. Um, that's one thing that kind of worries me. Uh, that's one reason I want to really work on these transition concepts of, um, of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, you know, that's about the only way that the oil and gas industry can address scope three emissions uh, from automobiles burning uh, gasoline. Uh, I think there's a way to kind of set up systems that will maintain uh, over time, uh, at least uh, uh, some of those aspects of the current system. And I think Texas Coast will transition away from that to some extent. Uh, I think the plastics industry is going to transform. I think they're going to be uh, seeing more and more recycled content into their new plastic products. And I could see a recycling infrastructure of a massive dimension being required to bring plastic, uh, recycled plastics to these facilities that are on the Texas coast, but not necessarily where the key recycled facilities are. Uh, there's all sorts of plans in, in mind. I do think that carbon sequestration is going to be an absolute aspect of both the technological removal and nature-based removal. Uh, I don't see any company surviving past 2025, 20, 2030 without a massive commitment to carbon dioxide emission removal, avoidance, minimization, and then um, mitigation through um, uh, offset. So I see those changes coming. Like I said, my biggest concern would be a big storm that disabled a lot of the infrastructure and whether there would be investment to rebuild. There's a lot there. And uh, let's talk a little bit about about the emerging thinking in Houston around uh, carbon capture and sequestration. We've seen this at the University of Houston, uh, has a center devoted now to research in carbon capture and sequestration. Of course, Rice University is predominant in this issue. We're starting to see thinking from the petrochemical industry uh, and the power sector in the uh, capture of flue gas emissions, CO2, and deep geologic storage or permanent geologic storage of CO2, uh, a sequestration method that will uh, rely on the expertise of the oil and gas industry to capture and, and, and build pipelines and to drill and to inject CO2 into secure geologic storage. I mean, it does make sense to me, and it's sort of counterintuitive, but it does make sense to me that the city of Houston, the energy capital of the world, can become the carbon sequestration capital of the world. Do you think that that level of innovative thinking and investment is occurring in the city? What's, what's your read? Yeah, my read is that it, is, it, it will happen. Uh, I think that we're too responsive to where the market will take us. Uh, these these. The people that have made money in oil and gas didn't make that money because they were just failing to read the signals. They were reading signals hmm. and the signals are pushing us in this direction. It makes absolute sense for, for Houston to become the absolute capital of everything that will take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it away somewhere. Now, Tyler, we, we just got, I mean, you got to say, Tyler, that's kind of an astonishing uh 
uh, thing to think about that the uh, oil and gas capital of the United States is going to become the climate change response capital. <laughs> carbon in, carbon out. You know, I, it does make sense. And I, I think I think Jim is smart to see that, you know, those even though they are polar opposites, it is they're still connected in that continuum. And uh, that pivot, what I think is interesting is that in the absence of the oil and gas economy, which is, I think, I think we can all foresee diminishing, as, as Jim just said, uh, a new identity, a new economic identity will need to be created. I mean, it's this, a new economy. It's, it's a more, new it's economy. Than that. It is a circular economy of the future. The closing of the carbon cycle is the next phase of the oil and gas industry. It's the next phase of ranching. It's the next phase of farming. It's the next phase of virtually everybody's uh, industry, uh, commercial activity, period. That is where we're headed. And the sooner we understand that, the, I think you'll see the business, the new business opportunities are popping up all over the place. We're talking to just entity after entity that's getting into carbon testing. Uh, soil carbon testing by the U.S. Department of Agriculture was virtually non-existent until a few years ago. Uh, they, they've tested everything about the soil, but not the carbon. We don't have good data about uh, soil carbon. The technology, oil and gas companies love technology. Yeah. If I had uh, if I had patented photosynthesis, I would be the most popular <laughs> person around. But the fact that it's a gift of nature that now that really befuddles a lot of people. How do you know that doesn't fit into the business model and the business thinking? But we're working on it. I think you are working on it, and it does fit. And if you realize that there is a natural carbon cycle and that there are natural processes that capture and sequester carbon, as you've discussed incentivizing not screwing it up i mean here's what we're trying to do quit screwing up the systems that do pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and hold it i mean we need all of those systems to operate we need these ranch lands to be healthy we need the marshes we need the oyster reefs we need the forests we need all and, of the and, more, and we need more of them yes and we'll, we're willing to pay for it is what you're saying and what the b carbon institute is really about is about how do we pay for this to make it happen and, and if assuming what I'm talking about happens, it will be the largest land conservation and ecological uh, expansion program in the history of the world. See, I knew I knew deep down that's that that's that soul of you as an environmental protection advocate that somewhere in this system, that's the outcome. And uh, it's damn good. I wouldn't Jim. be working on it if it weren't. I uh, know. And you got it. You got to live long enough to see it. So do I. I mean, this is uh, this is this fundamental change you're talking about and harnessing the economic, the horsepower of the economic system and the profit motive to get to the better result. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm reluctant. I'm always a little bit nervous um, uh, putting away the tools of command and control regulation that we've relied on to steer uh, economic activity to a less damaging way. And it seems like you've really made the transformation to in order to tackle a problem of this magnitude, we're going to have to work within the economic system and think creatively. And it's just great that you've been doing this on the Texas coast and uh, at Rice well, University. I'm not ready to. I'm not ready to abandon the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and RICRA and Circle quite yet, and right. NEPA and endangered species. But I think the climate challenge demands a different response, and I think the plastics challenge demands a different response than regulation. Yeah, you know, uh, 
in the world of tech development, you have version one, and then you have version 1.1, 1.2, 1.2. Yeah, what are we on? Well, I mean, I think what Jim <laughs> is talking about is going from maybe a one to a two. We're going to go yeah. from yeah. a 1.9735, <laughs> and we're going to bang out a 2.0 here. And, hey, and then we're going to have a, a new set of regulations and a new set of uh, of ways that we can be more efficient, which will uh, make some regulations not necessary. And uh, there will, of course, necessitate a need to trim the sales uh, once we get there. But I, I have to say, I think the economy should make sense. This is my new litmus test. I think there should be, you know, the circular carbon economy does make sense. It, it's It's intuitive in a way. And that's an important component of the economy. Yeah. You know, we all have to have some degree. We all, it's a socio-economy. It's right. just as much a social belief as it is a, an actual exchange. And it actually may be more of a belief structure than any of us would like to admit. Agreed. Yeah, the externalities problem in environmental law, Jim, was what we learned about when we were young lawyers. Uh, and the circular economy model is in a way to compensate and contend with externalities, which we have ignored for hundreds of that, years. That's, a, that's a, an economic structure that eliminates externalities. Right, right. Love it. Wow, what a fascinating discussion. Who knew? Uh, if Jim, I've got to say, for the folks who have not... I'm so glad that you're compiling your coastal updates over for the from the last you know 25 30 years uh, on your website. Please tell our audience again where they can read the coastal updates and read the 2021 update. How can people keep up with your work? Uh, probably if you just Google uh, Jim Blackburn uh, website, uh, it's www.jimblackburn. I think. Uh, <laughs> dot something else uh, I can't remember all of that Jim I, D- Google Jim, Jim Blackburn <laughs> nobody says www anymore <laughs> we're old people we're old people I was just reading I was just trying to read remember what it looked like when I read it off the top but it's Jim Blackburn's website and Jim Blackburn I, I, will say this. I also do poetry and you know, coastal poetry climate poetry and that's all also on that website. And if you Google Jim Blackburn virus vigil, I did 365 straight days of my friend did paintings and I did poetry. And it's all posted on that same website that's got the coastal update. on. I love it. I absolutely love it. The heart and the soul and the mind. It's the melding of it all. That's what we need. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Jim Blackburn. He is a faculty scholar at the Baker Institute at Rice University, an attorney with Blackburn and Carter. He is co-director of the Speed Center at Rice University and a professor of environmental law as well, a real visionary for a better Texas coastal future. Jim, thank you so much for updating us on the Texas coast and all of the amazing things that you oh, work you bet. on. Peter, Tyler, thank you guys for having me and I'll be happy to come back anytime you want to talk to somebody who still says www. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for the old people like me. I'm in the old people yeah. camp. You know, Tyler. Gets, yeah, there's some old people around. <laughs> w- yeah. w- yeah. I, don't, I don't throw that on anymore myself, but I, I, see, I love you guys, though, because, you know, we're all connected. We're all connected, Jim. That's right. We're the smart guys. Don't take care. Have a great year, Jim, and we look forward to having you back on. Beaches and sand.